Before we talk about episode six, a quick word about our sponsor, iBooks. They have these Game of Thrones enhanced editions of George R.R. Martin's novels that help you keep track of the storylines and the characters in a fun and interactive way. In this episode, Jon Snow treks north of the wall and with the enhanced editions, they have this tab called Journeys, where you can click on a character and it'll show you with lines on a map exactly where they've gone, all over Westeros and Essos, up until that point in the story. These books are available exclusively on iBooks. Go to apple.co slash Game of Thrones to check them out. They're not available in all countries, but most likely where you live. Now, let's talk episode six. Welcome to Game of Thrones Weekly. I'm James Hibbard here with Darren Franich, and we're talking about Beyond the Wall, an episode that I don't know if I've seen a more divided reaction to a Game of Thrones episode before. Uh, some people are pretty critical of certain aspects. Others had lavish praise. Some had both. Uh, one of our colleagues, uh, Lynette, texted me last night saying it was the best episode the show has ever done. While some of the critics out there, like Alan Seppenwall, just slammed it. Uh, so I'm really curious, Darren, where did you come down on Beyond the Wall? Um, I would say that if this had been uh, merely a typical hour-long episode of Game of Thrones, I would have said, uh, you know, not, didn't hate it, didn't really like it. I kind of felt like they left a little bit of story on the table. I think that perhaps the most deflating part of it was the realization that, yes, they were going to just kill the least important and least interesting character in this sort of suicide squad had some issues there i will say though james that this was a very long episode of television and sometimes when tv shows that are usually an hour go longer there's the concern about oh, do they just like not edit it down to what could have been a manageable length i kind of felt like the last 10 15 minutes were the most kind of jam-packed energetic truly dangerous and ultimately really surprising of the episode so did, did not love it, had some issues with a lot of the lead up to it, but I think it's pretty hard to argue against a uh, zombie frozen dragon coming to life in the final moments of this episode. How did you feel about it, though? Where did you kind of land on it? Yeah, to me, uh, I, I thought emotionally it worked really well. It, it was like one of those ones where if you just sort of embrace uh, the spectacle of it and you embrace the action of it, uh, the special effects, I mean... That scene where Viserion is taken down, I mean, you watch that, you know, I, I rewatch at one point just to look at the effects and it's just, it's perfect. It's spectacular. It's, it's better than what you normally see in films. And uh, so I think on, on one level, you know, I think it worked really well. Um, I think it's one of those episodes where it's, it depends on how much you are a person that really you know, tends to think about the, the the grounded pragmatic reality of every little thing. It's like, you know, does it bother you that it takes uh, that that Gendry like you know runs all the way back to East Watch, sends a raven to Daenerys, and she flies out and she finds them in the middle of nowhere just in time. I mean, I mean, you're either a person that that kind of gets gets tripped up by that sort of thing, or or you're not. You're either a person that's like, hey, where are these giant chains coming from? You know, that they're using to to, to pull. Uh, Viserion out of the lake, you know, so there, there are certain things like that, that that were done for expediency's sake and that were done to kind of contort the story around to sort of make certain things work that that it seemed like some uh, critics got really hung up on, really distracted on and sort of detailed all their issues with. Whereas if you just kind of kind of go with it. 
you know, you're having an amazing time. Um, James, we should say that you were actually on set for uh, a really key moment in this whole thing and a moment that I thought was one of the more effective bits of just like pure action. This kind of comes after we, we establish early on the rhythm in this episode that we're going to get a nice little like bro down, like recap uh, between each of these characters, different sort of like pairing off of our suicide squad. But that's... That all gets interrupted by this sort of, they're out in the deep, like John Carpenter's The Thing part of the snow. They see something on the very distant snowy horizon. I initially, of course, I'm kind of like, oh, that's like a white walker. That's a white. Like, I love that they were like, okay, we're going to really show you something new here, some new aspect of this, uh, by which I, of course, mean a zombie bear. And you were there, James. They actually wrangled that that, that zombie bear on set for you that day, right? Oh, oh yeah. I, I took some photos with the zombie bear. I mean, I, I got to pet it. No. Uh, the zombie bear looked like a sort of metal skeleton with like a blue ball for its head uh, dur- during national shooting. But but I tell you, uh, a lot of the shots were done in Iceland and, you know, where you saw some of that gorgeous cinematography in the episode um, for the battle sequences, both the polar bear scene and the white attack with the island. They were done in a quarry in Belfast. And first of all, it's, it's really amazing when you get out there because they had the ice lake with the rock made in this quarry and you walk out onto the surface and you feel like you're on ice. It looks so convincing. You feel like you're going to slip even though, even though it's, it's, it's just painted and crafted. Um, and, uh, the, uh, and they use like, like these, these giant fans blowing, uh, this paper snow, uh, out at the actors that you create a certain blizzard effect and they fill in certain backgrounds, uh, with CG based on the photography that, that they did do in Iceland. And it was, it was just amazing just to walk onto that set and just see all these actors together that you know, these characters that you never thought would be in the same scene together, having to work together. And the whole thing was directed by Alan Taylor, which, um, you know, for those who sort of geek out on, on the director side of things, Alan Taylor is a guy who came in and directed the final two episodes of season one. And for my money, he was the director along with Tim Van Patten, who reshot the pilot, who really established the look of the show. I mean, those two episodes kind of raised the bar for what the show looked like. You know, they brought him back and had him do like four episodes of season two, which is a lot. And then after that, he went off to do Thor 2 and Terminator Genesis. And now he's back for the first time since then. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I want to say right up front, Alan Taylor directed what is probably my all-time favorite episode of television, certainly my favorite episode of any great drama, uh, the late season in Sopranos episode, Kennedy and Heidi, which begins with the murder of a extremely long-running character and then just becomes a weird trip to Las Vegas. It's incredible. Everyone should watch it if they haven't seen it. Alan Taylor's kind of directorial sensibility is so interesting. I did think, James, that like just some of the like the way that they had the time to hold some of the shots of the scenery, I thought it was so evocative, really sort of pulled you in. Some of the later action bits, I think it's difficult. I think Miguel Sapochnik set just such a high tone for kind of rampage poetry with uh, the Battle of the Bastards last 
last year. And so I, I did sort of feel like there were some moments here where it was just like all of our dudes fighting against the whites. I did feel like my, my sort of, I, I propose we need to come up with like some version of the red shirt on Star Trek for the fact that there seemed to be like 30 wildlings with our guys and just like like like, like a new one would, would appear just in time to get killed. I kept on being like, wait a second, was that, was that like, was that Barrack who fell? No, okay, good. It was a, it was a wildling. It was, it, it was a wildling number, number 57. So I did feel like there were a lot of kind of like meat shields on this particular trip, which was a little frustrating later on. But I'd love to know, James, you're sort of talking about being on set for this. Can you kind of walk us through just the elaborate special effects involved? I love, you know, as you pointed out, the dragon later and the bear here just looked a lot more vivid and visceral than even some special effects in like $200 million like movies. Like what was it like kind of like seeing that sort of come to life uh, at to that point in the production process? Yeah, well, it's it's funny when you watch it because every, everything looks so goofy because you know they're dealing with this 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 metal thing and this ball and you have a such a clear sense that okay this is just acting going on and it's interesting to see the uh, hear hear the direction that they would give like things that you you and I wouldn't even think of like they're walking. And the blizzard's blowing at them, the paper snow, and Ellen Taylor is like, well, no, well, w- wait a second. Remember, when, when you're in a blizzard, you can't see 10 feet in front of you. So so if you're, you're running, there's a different way that you run, and there's a different way that you walk when, when you can't see anything in front of you. So there's like, like, like all these little adjustments that they would make to try and sell the reality of it. And one thing that's funny is that you'll notice that a lot of the main characters, they all have hoods but but they have the hoods pulled back and so that's so you can see their faces you know unlike a lot of the red shirts you you, you mentioned you know who have these uh, hoods up kind of like blocking their face and one point alan taylor's like yeah you know i mean uh john snow you know doesn't wear a hat because ultimately we want him looking like a hero <laughs> and and th- that's been true in a lot of his treks north of the wall you have all these people in hoods and then you'll have him with his magnificent hair out you know so totally so to, to take advantage of that and to help sell him in that, that kind of reminds me of like one of my favorite ever bits of like hilariously perfect visual poetry and something that's otherwise trying to be realistic but on Battlestar Galactica the fact that all of the pilots had like a spotlight inside of their face that actually lit it up which which, right. if you think about it logically, is like there was no, there's no purpose for that. But it was just such a great visual, and yeah, like I just thought that the moment where they have captured this white, they are now fleeing. I, I don't know about you, James. I kind of thought like, okay, well, they're going to be attacked by like a platoon of the dead right now. Like, there's probably one white walker coming at them, surrounded by. Oh nope, wait, that is the entire uh, population of dead people that has ever lived up here is now surrounding them. And when the kind of initial onslaught happened into their sort of rock area. There's just that great shot that kind of lasted for a while where you saw a couple of our main characters just, you know, begin to attack. And just, yeah, like you see John with his hair, you see Tormund and he's just going wild. Like the effect of that just was so, so much more important than like, yeah, I'm sure they were like freezing, but John's got to let his hair out. He's got to let his hair out. You know, how are they going to know it's him otherwise? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And yet, you know, because they're in Belfast and not in Iceland, they're all like, totally hot under those outfits they're 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 especially during those action scenes they're just dying in there what they have they have this cool thing that i think they just got it like in the last couple seasons where 
it's like they're they have like these tubes under their outfits this this kind of water flow system and they hook themselves up to this pump thing that sends cold water under their clothes basically through this like tube system it's almost like the still suits in dune <laughs> but, uh, but that they're wearing so so they can cool off by like literally hooking themselves up to the, this water pump which you know for especially for people like uh, rory mccann who plays the, you know the hound he's got those facial prosthetics and if he gets too hot they'll start like melting off his face and then he has to stop and have them like like reapply did you have james just kind of of the uh dirty dozen minus a few gang that was up there did you have any kind of favorite moments of just like dialogue between them i i feel like i felt like there was just a lot of kind of like pairing off along the way was a little intrigued by like you know Barrick talking to john i think that was another bit of flag planting about his ancestry that Barrick didn't think he looked too much like ned stark um but I, you know, I was also just for a character who it turned out, yes, was the most obvious to die, and he did die. I did like that kind of last little bit of dialogue with Thoros uh, after he was injured, talking about when he ran into Pike and just admitting, like, I don't remember any of that. Like, I, I thought that was kind of for me the kind of like standout <laughs> moment. That that was the most like dirty dozen-y moment yeah. of, the, of the whole thing, right? It was just like, wow, like, right. I thought that was really kind of sad. You know, this idea that his his greatest moment in his life as a warrior is one he didn't even re- remember next time I, I go out it's like no i'm not gonna have a beer i want to remember that this night uh, unlike thoros when he ran through through the breach at pike you know <laughs> you're, you're talking about um uh, sir jorah i think uh one thing that was really key in that conversation is he mentioned the idea of the sword not only keeping it john should keep it for himself Longclaw but that also he should have it for his children, which kind of had this odd look on John's face because, you know, for a long time he thought he could never have kids because he was in the night's watch and now, Oh wait. Yeah. You know, he's been, he's been a little too busy to think about it, but he can. And you had another conversation with Tyrion and Daenerys where he brought up the concept of secession, which, you know, for a moment made me kind of freaked out, you know, just because nothing gets put in the show for no reason. So I couldn't tell if they were planting the flag of the idea of, wait a second, Daenerys might die and it's going to leave a leave a big question mark mark into who uh, comes after her or they're plant, planting a flag about the possibility of her having a kid, maybe with the king in the north. So the fact that they both had references, that they, they seem to be falling for each other and both had references to uh, having kids or not having kids, uh, I thought was interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Um, I- I'm still not sure what I-, I think. I'm kind of pleading the fifth on the kind of uh, parent trapping going on between Danny and John. I thought it was maybe a little bit too cute when Tyrion said, "Like, oh, Danny, you know, you just you just mentioned those other three guys who all fell in love with you, and now you're talking about John." I was like, "Okay, we don't necessarily need to put too much of a fine point on this." I did think, though, James, that. Interesting as we've reached what seems like this beautiful point of the people we really like whose rise we've seen are in charge. John's in charge. Daenerys is in charge. Sansa we'll get to in a moment. I did like that there was that little bit of a Tyrion kind of saying, hey, okay, like, yes, you're young, but uh, James, my father is in estate planning. It's important that everyone consider doing that once you reach a certain age. Like, you never know what's going to happen. You you never know when the Night King might uh, throw a spear at you. So, yeah, I I was 
intrigued by that also. I, I, I did sort of wonder if what that was was just this, this kind of subtle bit of scene setting for an episode where someone ultimately lost a child or, you know, lost a huge dragon that is essentially her child. But yeah, I was very intrigued by that. We should address a little bit, James, just the moment of Danny's arrival. You sort of mentioned this. Yeah, ravens are telecommunications. We've already addressed this. Um, I think you, I think you either have an issue with it or you don't. The reason why I knew immediately the episode was going up in my esteem was Danny walks out in like an awesome new bit of attire, perfectly made for the North. I was like, yeah, like that is. I love that it. is. I love that it. is that is the Funko doll that I want. Like that looked super badass. I just wanted the scene where she opens up her closet and that's like hanging there unused, <laughs> and she's like, finally. Oh my god! You know my my whole snow trooper dragon queen outfit is ready to go oh my god what if it's like what if it's like in the new legend of zelda she has an outfit for like every climate zone and like like like, like next season she'll be like heading down to dorn rocking some cool sort of like you know mediterranean summertime attire yeah i was i loved that I did think, too, that her journey this season has been interesting. I, I do think that perhaps there was more of a holding pattern than we realized. But this idea of her kind of saying, like, what am I here for? Can I do this the, the strategic way? Can I do this the diplomatic way? To me, her getting on the dragon and them all taking off together, it kind of brought me right back to that moment when the dragon arrived in the arena, other side of the world. And just, you know, again, mm -hmm. this other moment of her sort of having gotten so bogged down and even sort of betraying certain key elements of herself for the bureaucracy and for the politics to have that moment of being like, no, like I have to do this no matter what happens. Thought that was very interesting, albeit was also kind of with Tyrion too. I was kind of like, but hey, maybe, maybe just say who'd be in charge. Like, you know, you could just like leave sort of a, sign this sign this document where it says that Tyrion's going to be in charge once, once I'm gone. But um, how did you feel though about like the arrival of the dragons? Like the pure Song of Ice and Fire cover of the fantasy novel moment of the dragon's arrival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a total whole dragon riders of Pern yeah, sort of, you know, yeah. you know, fantasy fulfillment th thing go going on this season where <laughs> where the show has kind of like flirted with, you know, it's like this grounded uh, European medieval drama, like 90% of the time, and then you get like five, 10% of fantasy. I mean, they're they're kind of flooring the fantasy pedal uh with with, with this action here. And uh yeah, no, it's 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 spectacular, and there's also been, you know, a fair amount of debate about the whole the validity of of this mission. You know, with uh, you know, you know, is was Jon Snow's idea to go up there and get this white a basically a, a stupid plan? To begin <laughs> with. Um, and it's it's it sounds like it, you know Jon Snow is at this point practically saying that it is it was a stupid plan. You know, at the end he's like, I messed up, I made a mistake. But I, I, I the way I sort of see it is that we don't know until we see how it plays out, whether it was a stupid plan necessarily or not. Yeah. Though there is a certain amount of logical things that people are wrestling with. It's like, well, is is getting a, a white to try and convince Cersei worth it considering, you know, her personality doesn't seem like the type of person that would e even believe it anyway. Right, yeah. I mean, we'll see. I'm not sure they really had a plan, um, which which I think was sort of part of people's frustrations. Like, you know, this would have been a great moment for the kind of Tyrion Lannister. All right, here's what we're going to do. Like, you know, we're going to trap him in this valley and we're going to like, that didn't really happen. So I, I think there was some frustration around that, certainly for me. You also get into just certain 
like geographic issues. Like, you know, I, I love the sort of like almost old fashioned classical imagery of them being on this rock surrounded by the whites. The Night King is sort of literally within like literally almost within like spear distance of them. Um, this does bring up the question of Danny, while your dragons are blazing a fire trail through all of the fundamentally harmless as far as dead things go whites, could you perhaps think of flaming that peak over there where the big bad of this whole thing is? Yeah, but she doesn't know who the Night King is when she when, when she right, arrives. Right, I right. mean, she's focused on getting those people off the exactly. rock. So 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 all that, that that's just some random dead guy off of right, this. Right, right, right. It would be wrong of us to Monday morning quarterback, like, you know, hey, how come in this, like, super high-tension moment you didn't do the exact right thing? And I just thought that what struck me most of all is... I think what can get frustrating with a show as it goes along, even a show as like fatalistically destructive to main characters as Game of Thrones is, you do feel like you reach a point where you're like, okay, but like these people have survived for a long time. Ipso facto, like they are safe until the end. And in some respects, this episode was frustrating in that way. Like I really thought when Tormund was being pulled underwater, I was like, oh, this is like... Yeah. This is a full-on, like, Quint in Jaws death. Like, I am not going to be able to get this out of my head. And right. then I hung up and saved him, and I was like, all right, well, that's that's fine. But I, I found that my frustration with that led into the moment of true danger, much more so even than what we had earlier in the season with Cersei and the super cool kind of giant crossbow. Just the moment of the Night King, not even like kerfuffled by the arrival of three mystical beasts that I assume he hasn't seen in like millennia, if ever. Um, the, The fact that he sort of just very casually just strolled over, picked up his weapon, threw it. I thought that was handled so well. And I, I did think like the violation of that yes. was something that I really took home. Right, James? Like that that sense of like, oh damn, yeah, like this is these are not these are not invulnerable people anymore. Yeah, the uh D- you know, Daenerys has seemed like the most well, fireproof, literally. <laughs> Of all the characters, and and one thing that Amelia Clark said in our interview that's up on the site right now is that this is the first time you're really seeing her defenses starting to get broken down, which I also thought went really well into the scene with John when she said tearfully, you know, I, I, I'm paraphrasing something like "I hope I'm worth it" or something, which is a very unusual thing for her to say to to be that sort of uncertain and vulnerable uh, with anybody, you know, pr- particularly. Uh, you know, this, this guy that she's, she's still getting to know. But before we talk about that, I just want to go back to that thing with the Night King real quick, because, you know, one way that I, you know, it's always tough for me to, to judge Game of Thrones episodes because I cover it so closely. You know, I'm on the set, so there's, you know, certain things about that's, go, that's going to happen that, that I know about. So when it plays, I have a hard time sort of knowing sometimes how is this playing for somebody who doesn't know anything? And one way I know when something's effective is when I get really emotionally caught up in something, even though I know that it's going to be okay. And that was how I felt when the Night King went back for that second spear. It's like, I knew another dragon wasn't going down, but when he went back for that second spear, I was like, oh shit. (laughs) I started to really get into a panic and a stress of like, take off, take off, take off, quick, quick, quick. And were you thinking, James, because I was just thinking to myself, like, this is so nice that they gave Kit Harington a relative break in this episode. Like, you know, somebody else kind of gets covered by the whites and almost pulled down in the water. Like, you know, he's doing some cool swings and like, you know, yeah, it was probably hard to, it was probably hard to film, but like, at least he's not doing the most 
most physically difficult part of this. Right as I was thinking that is when he got tackled into the ice cold water. And it was just like, oh, the, there we go. Jon Snow cannot get away from any of these battles without going through some totally brutal, <laughs> wild extreme of, of near death. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and and as an actor, Kit Harrington is just so up for it. He is so into doing the the physical performance stuff. You know, he gives it so much effort. You know, when when he's on the set and and performing that stuff, I mean, it's like over and over and over again. Uh, he'll give like like every shot is all out. You know, crazy amount of 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 physical strength and and effort in, into it so so it's, it's it's impressive to watch when it when it happens but let, let's go over to, to that boat scene because i want to talk about the boat scene i want to talk about the targaryen handsies on the boat which i found pretty interesting you, know, you have this really cool moment of vulnerability with daenerys uh you know she's getting to see him with his shirt off which has to help his odds um <laughs> you know where are you with this like you know potential nephew and uh closeness going on you know um I, I i think it's hard this is the kind of situation where like you know uh, decades of fan theories are kind of catching up with drama um part of the issue so far i think is that we're just kind of hitting this problem common to tv shows where we've seen these two performers and characters with people with whom they had like tremendous sizzling chemistry. And also that was a time when the show could sort of take like a year or so to really kind of build up when Daenerys was, was with Drogo and they had a sort of like really interesting journey when John was with uh, Ygritte and there was a whole, you know, tragic arc to that. I, I do find that like the plot mechanics are a little clear to me here and I'm not sure how I feel about that. What I do like though is... <laughs> I love that we all know that they are related, that she is, in fact, his aunt. They don't know that. Unclear if they'd care. I mean, again, Targaryens had brother husbands and, like, aunt uh, wives for, you know, centuries in, in the past. But there is just, I don't know, there is that kind of... I feel like Jon Snow would care. There, but. There, there is just that kind of moment of, like, yeah, I, I would I would assume so. And so there is that moment of, like, if this does go anywhere, I'm still not sure it is. I, I think on some level I kind of prefer to think that this is still more of a respectful, like, ruler-to-ruler ruler kind, of kind of a dynamic with the potential for more later. I am struck by by the possibility of like some kind of end of a Faulkner novel reveal right as they're like, oh, we love each other. So that's when Bran arrives and says, hello, hello, John. I've got I've got some fun information for you. Like I, I do I do find myself wondering how that would play out. <laughs> hey, John, I've got some good news. And I've got some bad news. <laughs> what do you want first? But I don't I mean, like, you know, what do you think, James? Again, like so some of this is I know the problem of like it's kind of a an aspect of shipper culture that's been so omnipotent present so to see the show start to dip its toes in you know there is that sense of kind of like this uncanny valley effect how how, would you kind of feel about that scene in general though I liked it because it's like I liked it for really you know non-complicated reasons you know there are two good characters who who are like these noble characters they've been through a lot they have found each other in this case it's like you know, maybe the less you know, the better. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah maybe. definitely. And uh, and it was sweet. And there's not many sweet moments on 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 the show. Totally. And what I thought was great about it too was that it was rooted 
as much kind of in the greater macro story of Thrones as in these two people. The fact that when he said he would bend the knee, you could interpret that as an element of romance between two rulers, or you know, it could just be this sort of respectful moment of the North once again sort of yielding to a Targaryen monarch and that kind of being okay. Thought that was all great. I also realized, God, like I just call her Danny really freely. That's kind of like really rude of me now that I think about it. So I was I was kind of glad that like that was a part of it too. <laughs> like you sort of thought it was a cute moment, him calling her that. And it kind of was, but it was also a moment of her to be sort of like, you know, the last person who called me that was the worst person I've ever known. Well, one of one of the hundred worst people I've ever known. Right. Yeah. Right. You're listening to Game of Thrones Weekly. Game of Thrones Weekly. One of the great things about Game of Thrones is how interconnected the characters are with history, like how John and Danny are technically related, but it's easy to lose track of exactly how they're related, like niece or nephew or cousins or whatever. That's why it's great to use the iBooks exclusive version of George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones called the Enhanced Editions, help you keep track of the storylines and the characters in a fun and interactive way. It's a great way to get into the original Game of Thrones books that George R. Martin wrote with a lot of great interactivity. You have maps where you can track where everybody's going. You have footnotes where you can figure out where exactly on their respective family trees the characters are from. These books are available exclusively on iBooks, so go to apple.co slash Game of Thrones to check them out. They're not available in all countries, but they're probably available where you live. And for what it's worth, Jon Snow is Danny's nephew, uh, which would make them falling in love weird but not unlikely. I always associate with Danny with all the people who write about Thrones. It's like George R. R. Martin uh, titles his uh, Daenerys chapters Danny. Uh, all you know, recappers use it. It's basically really easy to write instead of writing out Daenerys, <laughs> and when you don't you don't have to remember. Okay, how is it spelled again? Yeah. There's two e's, right? It's like this lazy shorthand that all the people who write about the show use, but people in the show never normally right, say. Right, right, yeah. So I, I found it funny to have it kind of pop up within the show itself. Yeah, D- Daenerys is definitely the McConaughey of uh, Westeros. Do we need to address Uncle Ben? Jen? He sure went down swinging, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he came in, he fulfilled his his purpose, you know, uh he he saved Bran before and now he saved Jon Snow and uh now his watch really has yeah, ended. Yeah. Um, you know, I I I'm I'm more interested to talk about what happened with uh Viserion at the end there. The funny thing is is that you know, she it, Daenerys, I think this is one, maybe one of the reasons for that conversation on the boat is, you know, she mentioned her brother. She doesn't very often mention her brother. And uh, Viserion is, of course, the dragon named after her brother. So, you know, of of course, it's that one that goes bad. Yeah. I mean, like Viserion, fair to say, always kind of like the middle child of of the dragon trio. I'm I'm not sure like any of us would have been like too aware of the difference between him and the other one that isn't Drogon. But Rhaegon, Rhaegon. Gregor? Whatever. What I will say is, James, I was really taken by just the storytelling of this scene. You know, I love that you kind of mentioned the chains. Like, I, this is a well-equipped army. I fully imagine that, like, they are prepared for anything. As they're sort of pulling it up, there's just this moment of double realization. First is, oh, shit, 
like the dragons that we thought were going to be the weapon of like defeating this horrible nemesis and being peace to Westeros, like a like a dirty nuke in a Tom Clancy novel, that can go the other direction too. And it, it also really made me realize, James, something that I, I had never thought of, and I'm sure much smarter people than me had 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 conceived of this. It makes me wonder if. We're leading towards, depending on how far the Night King gets into Westeros and whether he gets through the wall and how far his power extends, are we building towards like a really freaky reunion with some characters who have passed this mortal veil if the Night King goes south? I mean, like, I I was suddenly imagining like, holy crap, like, is there a chance that next season we'll see, like, everyone who's died in, like, Winterfell? Like, you know, like, like, like Ramsay Bolton's face. I just, I was so taken with that, and I had never really conceived of that before. Yeah, I mean, for years, my thought has been that the show is not doing Lady Stoneheart, but the only way they might do Lady Stoneheart or a version of that is if the Night King gets south of the wall. Yeah, exactly. Because then you could, then you could potentially... Uh, stage that and you know I don't know if if tonally they would go for that you know bringing back those old characters in that fashion I don't know it's 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 it has very much a horror movie quality to it Uh, so yeah yeah I'm I yeah but I've thought about that before but uh, you know he still needs to get south of the wall exactly right yeah um Let's leave off with our friends beyond the wall and move to what what Tormund considers the South, uh, which, as John pointed out, is actually still the North. (laughs) Okay, so Winterfell. This whole Sansa and Arya thing uh, that's that, that's going on, um, I, I was very intrigued. Uh, you, yeah, you, this is the other thing people are struggling with. And we've actually talked about this a lot, kind of, uh, you know, off podcast, James. I am by no means against this on the principle of, like, how come they aren't getting along? Because, like, I actually do really love the idea that these are two people who've been very changed by their experiences. And to the extent that they, that, that they didn't get along before, you wonder what that would look like after so many years and so much um, change. Also very intrigued by, uh, you have a great write-up of this online that everyone should check out, talking to some of the kind of people who've worked on this season about like what's kind of going into this. I believe it was the writer Brian Cogman who kind of mentioned this notion of like it's almost this kind of gothic horror uh, tone, more so than it is you know kind of typical for Game of Thrones. I think part of the issue is, James, this is the rare moment where I'm just kind of like, like at the screen, I'm yelling like Arya, like what are you doing? I I I I don't get where you're coming from, and the fact that we're all so clearly playing into machinations is really frustrating. What did you kind of think about the kind of rapidness with which they went to DefCon One, maybe DefCon Two? However, the DefCons work. Things are ratcheting up here, James. How did you kind of feel about the dynamic between Arya and Sansa? Yeah, I mean, I can completely buy Arya going. T- to DEFCON 1 very quickly, you you wish it was over something a little bit more uh, nuclear than that letter because, and maybe it's just because as viewers, we see that and we're just like, ah, you know, she was a kid. It was years ago. Yeah, it looks bad, but we know, especially as viewers, you know, we know that ultimately nothing came of that letter. It's not like Rob Stark saw that and was like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to trust the Lannisters now. You know, he saw right through it. So so we have that extra bit of knowledge as, as, as viewers that nothing really came of it. You know, yeah, I think it helps to think about it from Arya's, Arya's point of view. 
because there was that moment uh, with with Nymeria, you know, she had to ch- you know you know chase off Nymeria. Sansa, you know, refused to back her story, uh, you know, which resulted in the butcher's boy being killed. Uh, then they go to King's Landing, and suddenly Sansa's like on the side of the Lannisters, and she's out there in the crowd watching her on that platform when when their father is executed. And then she gets back there and then she gets this letter. So there's this, you know, from her perspective, Sansa's storyline looks really bad for Sansa. And though you do have this desire watching it, it's like, hey, you guys need to like sit down and like tell each other your respective (laughs) stories and like have a normal conversation like anyone else would do in that situation. Because then you'd probably be in a lot better place than you are right now. Definitely. One thing that I will just say um, in favor of this storyline gets to what you were just saying this was kind of the episode where Sansa learned what Arya's been up to and maybe part of the problem is I'm just so totally with Sansa in every way here so when Arya says like I was there and I learned to be a faces man and these are my faces Sansa's I mean her, her reaction I would say is almost quite poker face because she's just kind of like I, I don't much like she was with Brad earlier this season like I don't quite what what does that mean like what does that exactly entail I also am very intrigued by if we are meant to feel this way, like I, I am so fervently on the side of Sansa here, even if I don't, I don't quite get yeah. some of the stuff going on with her and Brienne. Frustrating to me to see that like she is still returning to Littlefinger, but I guess if she feels kind of walled in on all sides, that might happen. I am very intrigued that this is a follow through on something that I was kind of wondering about at the start of this season. In the books, the character known as Lady Stoneheart is someone who we love dearly and are on the side of and we see how the need for vengeance and the inability to move on from past wrongs really warps her and I I am struck by the fact that there was a moment last night where I straight up thought like oh Arya's gonna stab Sansa like that's just going to happen now and whether I understand and buy that or not the tension of that was quite real and and the possibility that Arya was now as damaging to the cause that Sansa represents as any of their enemies um, was also interesting I I was sort of like joking about this before I do feel as if um, the show kind of gets to be reactive to current events in a way that uh, Martin isn't necessarily able to with his books, although it's always fun to look at Feast for Crows in the context of the mid-2000s and the politics of that time. This felt a lot to me like this was the Game of Thrones version of like, hey, like everybody who should be on the same side. Um, We're paying a lot of attention to these missives that were sent a while ago that we maybe should move on and look at other more current events as far as what we should be looking at here. So I I was very, I was intrigued by that. There were layers to this that I liked, James, even if the the drama of it was something that was kind of of, of elusive for me. But how how do you think this sets them up going into the finale and into the final season of the show? Like, it's fair to say that, like, the sense of siblinghood that seemed to be prevailing earlier seems pretty much out the window now, right? Yeah. I mean, you were talking about how how you're so on Team Sansa watching this. I There's that moment where she's going, you should be thanking me. We're standing in Winterfell again because of me. I suffered things you never could imagine. You never would have survived what I survived. Do you know how happy Cersei would be if she saw us fighting? Where I'm just like going, yes, yes, I completely agree with, 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 with her. And I, I think part of you know the reason some might might struggle with this part is I think we're so used to be on being on Arya's side, mm-hmm. like fully one hundred percent 
on Arya's side in every scene she's she's in. I think it's the first. This might be the first time in the show where we're suddenly not, and we're like, wait, why am I yeah. not on Arya's side all, yeah. all, all all of a sudden? So it 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 puts the audience in a in a different place. It definitely feels like everything is heading to some sort of major climactic moment with these two characters uh, going into the finale. Yeah, no, and, and, and you know, just on that note, um, intrigued by the possibility of uh, a, an actor staying on the show longer than perhaps their or her character stays on the show, uh, given the way that Arya sort of introduced the notion of faces and... Uh, what I could do with faces um, might might have to also uh, wear stilts just to kind of if you're going to be pretending to be Sansa. Um, but uh, we'll see. I love the idea that all along we've been watching a supervillain origin story, though. You know, I mean, like I, I'm, I'm not sure that's what the show is going for, and I'm intrigued to see where it goes. But you're right, James. Like we've always kind of thought like. This is like the Arya arc is just like this person who starts off as really great learning to be a warrior and she's going to use that for good. And then it's kind of like, Oop, like, whoop, maybe, maybe that wasn't it. Maybe, maybe what we thought was that was actually Samuel L. Jackson in unbreakable. <laughs> yeah. In a way there's a reflection there with the story with Daenerys too, because you know, both of them are these sort of, you know, characters who have had these stories where you're always on their side and, and, you know, they're always doing what feels like the right thing. And with Danny, they've tried to inject some uncertainty there too with the Tarleys. But though I think I sort of feel like Tyrion's the only person that's actually upset about the Tarleys. Yeah. You know, I, I as as viewers, I you know they've they've the show has tried to lay some groundwork of of Danny going into Mad King territory, and either we're too uh, beholden to our our preconceived notion notions of nat eh, that nanny okay <laughs> let me try that again um but either we're clinging too hard to the danny we know or they haven't gone far enough with that i'm not sure which it is but but i'm yeah you know, i'm not feeling i'm not really think fans are really feeling this idea that that she's seriously potentially going to the dark side. Yeah, and we'll see. You know, um, part of the issue, I think, is that uh, at least as the show has constructed it and as we understand it, can't really be on the side of the dead. Um, and so anytime a character is sort of getting into that battle, there is that kind of quality, what Jon Snow brought up last week. We're all still breathing. We're all on the same side. Like, there's only one protagonist here, which is why, James, I'm really intrigued. I mean... As much as happened on the map of Westeros this season, it has really been this sort of clearing off of, like, the secondary houses. And I'm very struck by the fact, even kind of watching the preview of next week's finale, um, this idea of getting the kind of final three more than three, but essentially three royals, one of whom is now allied with another one, all in the same place. You know, that kind of gets us back to the fundamental questions of, like, who are these rulers? What kind of queen is Danny? What kind of queen is Cersei? And so I'm just so struck by the fact that this episode, as you said, hard not to root for Daenerys, but there's clearly also these interesting holes being punctured in our preconceived notions of some other characters. And 
I'm struck by the fact that I just have no clue where it goes from here. I mean, the last finale that we had was such a total slate wiping as far as like getting us to a very different place in Westeros. We've been in that place. Like we think we kind of know what the layout is. I have no idea what Westeros looks like next Sunday night. And I, I think that's a pretty exciting thing to sort of be runwaying up to right now. Yeah, well, one thing it looks like is it looks like 80 minutes long, which is the longest Game of Thrones episode ever. Uh, so there's that. That meeting scene that you're referring to uh, actually takes place at the Dragon Pit, uh, which is this famed uh, former uh, castle that the Targaryens built to house their, their dragons in King's Landing that has since fallen into ruin. And we were on set for that, too. And that meeting is amazing is all I'll say and uh you can see there in the preview that hbo put out i mean there's Jon snow there there you know cersei's there uh brienne is there theon's there jamie lannister's there Tyrion's there it's like the type of scene that that you kind of wait years to see uh-huh. um well fortunately we only have to wait a few days okay james you <laughs> just said a lot of names there and it's funny because what's about to happen is i'm gonna need some names from our listeners because it's time for my favorite segment of the show, the trivia segment. Uh, last week, we had asked everybody, as of the end of last week's episode, who was furthest, who had traveled the furthest and was currently the furthest from where they were born. This was specific to people on the Westerosi continent because who really knows how far away Essos is? Probably lots of people. I'll look it up. Um, But just for Westeros, the answer to that is our pal Gilly, who started up way north of the wall, and when we last saw her, was all the way south, way down at the bottom of of, of Westeros in Old Town, which was in this week's opening credits, but didn't appear, so we'll see if uh, Old Town ever reappears. Um, Props to everyone who got that correct. This week's trivia contest winner, oh gosh, these items available for giveaway are awesome. There's a tote that says on it, a lion does not concern himself with the opinions of sheep. There's also a men's or women's t-shirt that says the same thing. Or there's a men's and women's t-shirt that says breaker of chains, which reminds me, uh, if anybody had uh, break the chains on their Game of Thrones drinking game this week, what a fun week for you. Great prizes this week. Um, You're going to want to email your answer to gotpodcast at ew.com and one winner will be selected at random if they get the correct answer. James, I I bet you're going to know this because you're just a big fan of the Greyjoys. Everybody knows that. Great shout out this week for Uh the Battle of the Siege of Pike which of course took place during the Greyjoy Rebellion. Surely, surely the least fondly remembered rebellion on this show that has been full of them. This week we had Jorah reminiscing with Thoros about uh, that moment, or rather trying to reminisce. Thoros didn't remember it. But I'm intrigued to know, does anybody out there remember, previously on this show, we have had two characters who were present at the Siege of Pike, talking about their respective memories of that siege, looking for one specific conversation. Tell me who was recalling what happened at the Siege of Pike and who was he talking to who was also at the Siege of Pike? Two characters. 
who were there talking about this very memorable battle for everyone except for Thoros. Email your answers to gotpodcast at ew.com. One lucky correct answer winner will be selected at random. So many great prizes. While you're at it, we love hearing from you. James is on Twitter, at James Hibbard. I'm on Twitter, at Darren Franich. Email us, gotpodcast at ew.com. We'll crack open that mailbag this week sometime. Lots of great stuff going into this finale. And uh, while you're at all that stuff, if you like what you're hearing as much as we do, let us know how you think. Go on Apple Podcasts. Give us a rate and review. We love hearing from you. And we'll be back next week. James will probably have several dozen posts ready on EW.com. You should read some of those right now to get ready. Next week, next Monday, the finale of Game of Thrones Season 7. A final word about our sponsor, iBooks, and those Game of Thrones enhanced editions of George R. Martin's amazing novels. The enhanced editions help you keep track of the storylines and the characters in a fun and interactive way. In this episode, Jon Snow has gone far beyond Eastwatch, and with the enhanced editions, if you start a chapter with one character in a castle, for instance, there's a detailed illustration at the start of the chapter that shows where that place is on the map and what's right around it, where there's walls around it, whether there's a town near it, whether there's a river nearby. So you kind of get this better orientation in your mind about where each character is in each chapter as you navigate this epic fantasy world. These books are available exclusively on iBooks. Go to apple.co slash Game of Thrones to check them out. They're not available in all countries, but probably available where you live.